And the reason why stock portfolio, as nerdy as it might sound, is an interesting analogy. It's because it's one of the few areas in the world where we know that risk equals more reward, but you can't be all risky. You kind of have to have a bit of a portfolio. We get and we internalize that. But when you take away that structure, our human emotions come in. And there's a lot of weaknesses that we have because of our innate desire to preserve and protect whatever's worked in the past. And so in, uh, in, in finance, as an example, there's two, exam there's two constructs that are unique. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Jeremy Gucci. Jeremy, thanks for making time. Thanks for having me on the show, Jess. So for people that don't know about Trend Hunter and they don't know about the Innovation Handbook and the, the other side, the Create the Future, can you give people a little bit of a, a background on what you've been up to? Sure. A high level, I was always a guy looking for his business idea, and I couldn't figure out what it should be. So uh, before YouTube, before Facebook, I coded up a website called Trend Hunter, where people from around the world could share business ideas. And what I didn't expect is that the view count would go from thousands to millions to billions, and pretty soon it would become the world's largest trend platform. It's kind of like a giant focus group. You can go to it for inspiration, but on the back end, we use all of the data and insight to do thousands of, of uh, futurism and innovation projects for uh, pretty much every major brand you can think of. There's about 700 of them now we work for, and it's Disney, Samsung, Google, NASA, Starbucks. Uh, and so we get a really fun chance to glimpse into the future with whatever projects they're working on next and then helping them figure out how to actually make it happen. So the new book, Create the Future, Tactics for Disruptive Thinking, is all about what we've learned in helping so many people in their quest to find their big idea. And it is a two-sided book paired on the other side with the Innovation Handbook, which is a rewrite of my 2008 bestseller, Exploiting Chaos, which is all about how times of chaos create opportunity if you know how to look and filter through that chaos. I love it. So besides, besides going on Amazon, um, where, where are the best other places for people to connect or come check out the book? Well, if you go to trendhunter.com, we've always got all sorts of freebies, free trend research and info about the book. So trendhunter.com is uh, always the place to find me. That's where I'm lurking about at any given time. Love it. Well, um, kind of kind of fun to have a, another Alberta boy on the show. Um, uh, can you can you talk a little bit about um, your dad and uh, and just some ways that he prepared you to be an entrepreneur? Yeah, I have a, a wild background story of my dad. You know, it's funny when I wrote my last book, Better and Faster. There's this part where you write it, you finally have all the content, you hand it in to your editor, and you're kind of nervous because you've worked on a project for two and a half years, and now you're going to get the feedback all at one time. And my editor read it, he called me, and he said, hey, Jeremy, I really liked page 86. And I was like, wait, what do you mean, page 86? What? what else? What would you like? Anything else? He goes, no, why do I have to wait till page 86 to hear the wild story about your dad, the boy entrepreneur, that explains everything about you. And I got to read 86 pages to get there. He goes, you need to go back and interview your dad and ask him all about, you know, what led him to be what he is and how he ticks. And that will explain to yourself who you are. And I thought that was a little 
weird or obscure, but I went back, I flew and I interviewed my dad and I asked him all the questions I never asked as a kid. And then um, uh, it was a great weekend. I'll, I'll tell you the takeaways and they're wild. But seven days after the interview, he had a heart attack and he died. And, you know, that's uh, obviously one of the most difficult parts for any of us when, when one of our parents die. Uh, and at the time, it was obviously crushing. But when I look back at it, I, I sort of thought, wow, if I knew when he was going to die, which I didn't, how would I want to spend my last weekend with him? And it'd be interviewing him. And that's what I got to do. So uh, I don't know if you'll indulge me. I could tell you some more of, the, of his wild tales. Does that sound good? Yeah, I love it because for me, like I think about wanting to raise my kids to be entrepreneurs. And so I think your dad's your dad's kind of an inspiration to me. So yeah, I want to hear it. Awesome. Okay, so uh, basically as a little kid, he came to Canada and he was in Calgary and he was a, in a poor immigrant family and he didn't have much, but his mom was- From, a from where, by the way? From Germany. Okay. And uh, they didn't have much, but his mom was a professional cook. And so they always ate well. They lived in a, him and his two brothers and his, his mom and dad lived in a one bedroom, tiny little shoebox of a house. And one day he's with her in the grocery store where she's buying materials for her job and, and you know, buying groceries. And there it is, the Kraft Philadelphia cream cheese. And when she's not looking, he grabs it, unravels it and smashes it in his mouth. And she's mortified because this is like her job. She needs to be in good terms with the grocer and her eight-year-old kid just ate the cream cheese. So she grabs him by the neck, takes him to the storekeeper, but then she probably is starting to figure out like, what do you say? It's going to look bad on her too. So then she just went, I caught this kid stealing. <laughs> Isn't that your kid? And uh, they sentenced him to a month of sweeping the floors after school. And so every day he would go after school, sweep the floors, and then he started noticing a weird thing, which is that he was only eight years old, but he noticed that at the end of the week, grocery stores throw away the food that is still good, look, good enough to eat, but not good looking enough to sell. And even though he was eight, that seemed weird uh, because, you know, being in a poor neighborhood, that, that just isn't how things were done. So he struck up his first business deal and he agreed to keep on sweeping the floors forever in exchange for the leftover food that he would cart around to his neighbors to sell at deep discounted prices. And pretty soon he was the first kid on the block with a leather jacket and a BB gun. He expanded. He got into month-old magazines, door-to-door -door donuts, school supplies. Um, and, and he had a pretty wild adventure of ups and downs as this boy entrepreneur. But what was interesting is he started really zeroing in on the fact that what matters, and this is important for you and for me, but his life realization is that what matters for success to find that next opportunity isn't really just hard work. It's hard work, but also finding an overlooked opportunity like those groceries, like those discarded vegetables. So he dedicated his life to trying to find those overlooked vegetables per se in, uh, in all sorts of different markets. And uh, I don't know, I'm talking for a long time without it being a back and forth as a podcast could. That framed up everything in, in my world. Uh, we can go a little more into his story detail if you want, or I could just get into how he wanted to make me be a little entrepreneur. How, how would you like to use the time, Jess? Well, I want you to tell the Stampeder story and sit in all the seats. And then I want you to talk about uh, let, let's start with that and then we'll go for the next one. Sure. So then, you know, for, for him, he kept on having all these different ventures and some worked and some didn't, and he'd have a good run and then he'd go bankrupt and then he'd have a good run again, always looking for overlooked opportunities. 
And then one day he made a small loan to the owner of the Stampeder Football Club. It was about enough money to buy a car with. But that owner was having problems with the SEC, I guess, needed some sort of funding quickly. And pretty soon those problems escalated. And the club, the the club had a, you know, the Calgary Stampeders had a stadium that was only half full at any given time and they weren't making money and they went into bankruptcy. And when they did, the government went to my dad and they said, hey, I don't know if you know this, but the club is in bankruptcy. It's losing a couple million a year. And uh, on the balance sheet, it's only got one small debt and it's to you. So according to Canadian bankruptcy law, you are the owner of a football club (laughs) if you choose to accept it. Wow. But the catch is that he didn't have the deep pockets to withstand any additional loss. So for him, that's wild. Imagine owning a sports team, but not being able to bankroll it. And his buddies told him, this sounds exciting, but don't do it. You can't, you'll ruin yourself. His accountant told him, you can't even afford to, so don't even talk about it. My mom told him, I've got a list of your good ideas and bad ideas. This is at the bottom of the list of the bad ideas. You really can't do this. And then I told him, that sounds awesome. (laughs) <laughs> so uh, he took it on and you know truthfully he lost everything in the first year he lost our house he lost his car he lost his business his investments and he started going into debt by more than a million dollars because um you know he, he was trying to keep this thing cash flow running and at the end of the day you know everyone in the city knew the financial struggle he was going through And the difference was, though he was in that um, difficult position, he wasn't shy of letting everyone know. And he pushed harder than anyone to turn that team around. He started picking up the phone with the players, Doug Flutie, Jeff Garcia, and calling you and saying, hey, we need you to come to the game on Sunday. Can you show up to watch us play? And if you were in the stadium and he saw you with an empty seat beside you, he didn't have his own seat. He would just sit next to you and start talking to you saying, hey, uh, nice to meet you. What do we got to do to turn this thing around? What was it like in the good old days? What do we need to bring back? And he, he hustled. And he figures he sat next to 600 to 800 people over his six years. But in that time frame, they went from 15,000 people per game to by the second year, 35,000 people per game. They then sold out every game for the rest of his six years. They were first in the West five of the six years. They won the Grey Cup, which is our Super Bowl, two of those six years. And in his final year, when he'd go in the stands, people would cheer his name because they knew all the financial struggles he went through and they'd start going sing, sing, sing. And in his final year, when they had to vote for the MVP player trophy winner, they all started chanting his name, crossing the players off on the ballot and writing his name in. So in this final year, he won the MVP player trophy, even though he never played a game in his life. And that's the story of my dad. Well, it's so fun because I was living in Alberta those years and I didn't care about football. I was too busy snowboarding and doing competitive judo. But, like, I became a Stampeders fan because, like, it caught on for the whole province. Yeah, you know, it was pretty wild. And, and as a kid, watching my dad as a teenager, I was just going to university in that time. But I really started seeing that, that learning from me as a kid because a lot of his winnings and, and his successes came from not just hard work, but really looking for all of the overlooked opportunities in, in every possible way. And if I drive that back to what it was like growing up with him, he really wanted my sister and I have that love of entrepreneurship and so i had as a kid oh i don't know a dozen different goofy businesses you know the painting company the lawn mowing i made a peanut butter company i had all these inventions um i had a i had a business where i'd resell you know i'd I'd, I'd sell you all sorts of junk and i had posters all over the neighborhood that said jeremy's junk (laughs) come check out jeremy's junk (laughs) my god 
Uh, so my parents probably thought, oh, he doesn't know what that means. We need to help this 12-year-old kid get a business idea. So then the activity I had with my dad is that every week we would sit down with magazines and we would flip, and it could be in any category. It could be fashion, trucks, cars, design, fishing. And we would flip to the section with new inventions. And you'd say, what do you think about this idea? What about that idea? Could we make this? If we go to garage sales, what parts do we need to buy to build this this weekend? And then we would actually make those prototypes that weekend. And I made hundreds of different prototypes with him. And I learned a lot. And on one hand, that meant I wanted to be an entrepreneur so bad. But on the other hand, when you look and you see so many ideas, you also start to get overwhelmed by all the opportunities. How do you pick? And I kind of think that's where a lot of the world is right now. There's so many different opportunities and so much chaos now as well. Then how do you pick what's right for you? That becomes very difficult. So in my own career, that led me just to become a consultant. And then I started running innovation for a, a, a bank where I was just trying to figure out how do you pick the right path? How do you find the ideas right for you? And, and eventually I grew the bank a billion dollar business, which sounds good, but it felt like a disappointment to my 12 year old self. I still hadn't figured out what my business idea should be. So that's why uh, in 2005, before YouTube, before Facebook, I started coding up Trend Hunter as a place for people to share business ideas. And truthfully, I felt some Trend Hunter somewhere maybe a trend hunter in Europe or a trend hunter in Asia might submit a little business idea that would inspire me. And what I didn't expect is there'd be so many people looking for ideas that now we've evolved into this giant trend platform where we would get a help, uh, you know, inspire millions of people and, and work with hundreds of different brands on, on, on predicting what's next and then helping them create it. I love it. Well, what's funny is you jumped right into the next thing I wanted to talk to you about was this idea of of your dad and helping condition you guys as kids and this idea of, you know, exposing you to so many different ideas by going through all those random magazines instead of just the same one or something like that. Um, so I'm, I'm interested now as you, again, you're working with, you know, so many of the biggest brands in the world. Um, you've done so many different things out there. I, I'm interested, you know, innovation is like such a buzzword. It's, it's almost like it's just really overused in my opinion. Right. And there's so many people that apply it to anything that's creative at all. I'm interested in your mind when you have met so many people and you've seen so many things, when innovation is done right, who, who do you look up to? Who do you think is an example of doing innovation right, whether that's an individual or a company or, or anyone? Well, you know, that's the issue. I think that we've been talking about innovation so much that it starts to get misused and overused. So actually, that's why... When I wrote Create the Future, I called the subtitle Tactics for Disruptive Thinking. I didn't put innovation because I think that we've reached the point where people have bought into this idea that, yeah, we want to and need to innovate, but how do you actually do it? And so what I really wanted to emphasize and make a bit of a textbook on was all the tactics you can do to unleash your potential. And I think that when you talk about who to look up to, you know, there's there's people doing a lot of different things that are creative and there's almost not exactly uh, you know, a wrong or right answer when you talk about a creative field. But I think a more simple concept would be who are the people who are putting in lots of tactics to try to get the most inspiration for their team. And a classic ex a comparison I, I often make is the difference between let's say old school Apple and Google. If you look at Apple historically in the, in the last 15 years or so, what, what you can really see is Steve Jobs and this brilliant guy who's like Leonardo da Vinci who came out with one exceptionally brilliant product every year or two in their, when they were rocking. 
and that reshaped the industry and it and informed us. But what can you learn from that? Well, I don't know, because I guess I'm learning how to be a better Leonardo da Vinci. And that sounds like a really tough business model to imagine that you need to come up with a perfect world changing product every couple of years. But, 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 you know, you really need to make an organization that just warms all around your version of a Leonardo da Vinci. That sounds really difficult. However, when you look at someone like Google, they put in practices and methods and tactics to try and harness creative innovation throughout their groups. They try a lot of different ideas and some things work, but lots of things fail and they publicly fail. You can see that. But the point is trying to create an environment where lots of people can test ideas and really create a portfolio of innovation. And that's more the school that I'm of, which is to say that innovation isn't always the great big grand eureka idea, but it's actually more attainable. And it might be a new product, new service, or just a different way of doing things, but it's accessible and you can get there with, with tactics. So circling all the way back then, I think when people talk about looking at one hero, I could say an Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, but then I also like to more gravitate towards organizations where instead the focus is on harnessing creativity from all sorts of different people. You know, it was interesting. Um, one of our earlier episodes, I had Maline Dastrup from Google on the show and uh, it went really great. And then I got invited out to the Google campus. I hadn't been yet. And we went on this tour and hung out for a day and saw all this stuff. And it was funny as she's like walking me through all these projects and like half of them were like in the middle of getting killed. And I'd never heard of them and nobody had ever heard of them. And she's like, it was, it was interesting because I think I had Google on such a pedestal of like, well, if they came up with it, it must be amazing, right? And she just talked about like this, like, you know, they invest, they only invest so much that it's like a small bet they can afford to lose at, you know? And that like, she, she was talking to me about how like, how stuff gets voted on, how stuff gets the green light to go further. And like, she told me about how many projects she had been on that never got greenlit, you know, and she's spending like years there working on stuff that didn't get the traction that warranted the next step. Um, and then, you know, just recently she was, she's at one of their like education spinoffs that teaches kids how to read without needing an adult. And so I used it for my youngest kid and he's sitting there reading these children's books and it listens to his voice and tells him when he got the word wrong and he can, he can click the screen and he'll read it to him. Right. And all this stuff, you know, and it was just interesting for me to like, it, it was this feeling of like, man, they're just mere mortals who are approaching this with different techniques than the rest of us. Anyways. Yeah. And I, uh, you hit on a couple of really interesting points there that are part of uh, our whole philosophy. So I believe that innovation in some ways should be like a stock portfolio, which is to say you should have multiple bets at different levels of risk and some things will work and some things don't. And the reason why stock portfolio, as nerdy as it might sound, is an interesting analogy. It's because it's one of the few areas in the world where we know that risk equals more reward, but you can't be all risky. You kind of have to have a bit of a portfolio. We get it and we internalize that. But when you take away that structure, our human emotions come in. And there's a lot of weaknesses that we have because of our innate desire to preserve and protect whatever's worked in the past. And so in, uh, in, in finance, as an example, there's two, exam there's two constructs that are used to talk uh, about um, um, investing that apply to gambling, and they also apply to innovation. And they're kind of fun to think about. The first one is called house is money. And it's that when you're a gambler way back in the day, you'd go and you gamble at the house, the casino, 
and you earn a whole bunch of money, you get ahead, and then you start playing with that money as if it didn't belong to you. It still belongs to the house, even though it's your winnings. So you do well and you start to overspend. And that happens with investors. If we do really well in one thing, our tech stock took off, well, then we think we should put our whole portfolio all into tech. Let's just do tech. It's really good. And with innovation, the same thing can happen. You can get too excited and you have a win. And yet we know that the world oscillates. Things work, they don't work. Everything's a market. The reverse of that is called a snake bite, which is interesting to understand in today's current economy. A snake bite is when you have a loss. And when we have a loss, we take it really personally. It's like we were bitten by a snake. We become irrationally conservative and we want to pull everything out and stop innovating and stop investing and stop gambling. So it's important to think about how your creativity, your free time, your hours of free time, as well as your team, could be managed in some ways kind of like a stock portfolio. And that's what, what Google does. But most organizations don't. And it can be uh, uh, tough to kind of manage like that. So I'll give you one extra example of how some companies institute a process like that. So the other example would be at the BBC, uh, they were losing market share. People stopped watching the television shows on the BBC. So they fired their CEO and CFO and a new CFO and CEO came in and they wanted to make some changes to how decisions were made, how shows were picked, but they were too new and they didn't want to put ripples through this big organization. So they made just one little change, which is that they put a gambling fund in kind of like the high end part of your stock portfolio, a little gambling fund. And the idea is that ideas that failed the normal process could still maybe qualify for gambling fund money. And one of the big hits was the office, which went on to be the biggest <laughs> hit in their history. It actually was part of the gambling fund. That's a riot. But that idea of having like survivable bets, right? That they didn't put it all on red. You know, it, it's interesting. You know, I'm glad you brought up the media because, you know, with with what's happened to the newspaper industry and the way that streaming has taken over from cable in many ways and these kind of things, I, I'm interested in your thoughts as you look at the future of media and, and what you're seeing. And any kind of thoughts that maybe things you see potentially come down the pipe that maybe the rest of us haven't noticed yet? There's a really uh, interesting uh, um, sort of change that we've already seen happen which is the world going in media from being one to many, so a few broadcasters making all the content that we see, to many to many, where you have user-driven content. And first we saw that with blogs and then influencers and then there's startups like, like Netflix and that landscape changed a little bit. On the medium end of content, where people could simply rewrite content, it's become diluted because there's a thousand different people that can produce the same article as you. But there is still a drive for the high-end quality content. You put together a great podcast as you have, have, and great. Now you've got a couple million people that are downloading what you've put together because you've put a lot more thought into making something deep. So I think what's happening is you have this constant competition where the stuff in the middle is now just becoming very diluted because you have tens, thousands, even millions in some cases of competitors producing content that looks the same. But once you start getting into the very premium world, there's still this ability to rise to the top and it's democratized in that you can be wherever you are in the world, create your innovation podcast that you have as an example, and then rise to the top, you know, getting traffic that beats what the traditional magazines get when they pump out a little article on innovation. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm interested in how you've applied this. Um, Obviously, you're a New York Times bestselling author. You've got, you know, uh, I think you have a forward in your book from Malcolm Gladwell. Is that right? Yeah, that helps. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sure. Thank you, Malcolm. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, right. 
Um, I'm interested in, in how you applied that to yourself and the approach that you took even to your books. Um, any lessons for the rest of us on, on the approach you took, you've taken to your books that have sold so well? Well, you know, what's interesting in the book side, when I first wrote Exploiting Chaos, Tactics for Disruption, or sorry, which is the, um, when I first wrote Exploiting Chaos, just rewinding back, uh, which was sort of the inspiration for this new book on Tactics for Disruptive Thinking. It was 2008, and I made that book as something I just purely loved. It was about how people get intimidated by the doom and gloom of a recession, and yet, uh, some of the greatest iconic brands and companies were founded during these times. Disney, CNN, Apple, Hewlett Packard, FedEx, Burger King, all founded during a period of recession. So I wrote my first book out of a pure interest and love of it, and I poured my heart into it, and I loved it. And I didn't really have commercial expectations. I just made a perfect little project of all the stuff I was really passionate about related to chaos. And that was chaotic, and I was in the right place at the right time. I didn't really follow the mainstream writing what other people were writing about. I wrote about chaos. And when that took off, uh, I became the chaos guy, and I started getting invitations by a lot of CEOs who were going through chaos, and I was in the right place at the right time. So the advice there isn't necessarily follow what everyone else is doing, but really try and think about what's next and follow your passion. And that kind of led to the next uh, decade and a half of my life working with a lot of these brands. And so now when it came time to write Create the Future, what I wanted to do was create a, a book of tactics from everything that I've learned. So for me, this is a passion project again, where I'm thinking, wow, after all these unique experiences, I've sure learned a lot. And I really just want to try and put that all in one place and, and make something that's useful for people. So that might be a different approach than what some people have followed when they put together their books. But for me, I wasn't really chasing a trend. I was more just trying to put together something of value based on uh, everything that I've learned and everything that I'm passionate about. So uh, I love it. And, you know, I was listening, I was watching the Netflix documentary or Amazon Prime documentary on the Stooges and Iggy Pop, right? And just a couple of days ago, and he got this great advice from a jazz musician, a jazz musician who he really looked up to, who, who really impressed upon Iggy this idea of play like you mean it. And it was interesting because I, you know, I guess anybody could say that it wouldn't mean as much. But when you listen to this interview, he, he really, it really influenced how he did like the next 30 years and becoming one of the biggest rock bands in the world, right? And this idea of like writing what you're passionate about, I mean, I know it's more than just that, but this, it, to me, it sounds a little bit like you're writing like you mean it when you say all that. You know, that's a, I, I really love that, that quote. And I think play like, I mean, I think that's really interesting. When I look at my own life, I so desperately wanted to be an entrepreneur as a kid with those exercises with my dad, looking through all those magazines, hunting my idea. And when I entered the business world, I sort of filtered down to business ideas I thought that I ought to pursue. Well, there's a market opportunity here and maybe this. And that's where I, I spent too much of my time hunting as opposed to trying to line up to what I actually really love. What I really love in my case is futurism and trying to help people work through difficult problems and this, this concept that you have more great ideas within your path than you might be aware of, but you get caught repeating what you do. And that's what I've dedicated my life to. And that doesn't sound like something that's a business model, but because I've poured my heart into it, work doesn't feel like work and it's become something. And if I was to talk to my earlier self, 
I think the advice that I would say would be, you think you're going to get in business and you're going to turn your business around and sell it in a couple of years, or that it's something where you're getting into it for the money and you're trying to find a market opportunity. That's not really true. You're, you're picking what needs to be a passion because you're going to pour all the hours of your life into it. You're going to probably stick with whatever path you're on a lot longer than you think. So how can you pursue your path in a way where work doesn't feel like work and you're really excited to dive into solving a, a tough problem and that you like solving? And that way you'll put the extra effort in and you'll, you'll reap the rewards and uh, you know, you'll look back in your career and, and the time will not feel like time spent in an industry where you didn't feel like you belong. <laughs> you know, I love that. I feel like um, it's like cliche to say things like follow your passion and stuff like this, right? But at the same, like, it's a cliche for a reason. Like, I think about things I've done in my life just so I can get to the finish line because I was just trying to get that done, right? But then I think about the things that I love the most, you know, besides hanging out with my family and it's like snowboarding and art, right? Like I'm an art school dropout that got into mergers and acquisitions. But when I get to do art on my own, like I'm not, I'm not just trying to get the picture done or like snowboarding, like you go do epic backcountry snowboarding, you know, snowmobile up to the backside of a ski resort and ride down the whole backside, fresh powder yourself. Like the riding is the point, not getting to the bottom. It's not like, oh, finally I'm at the bottom. This is great. Like the riding was the point, right? And like you think about doing business where building it is the fun part. Like sure. how much better is your life, right? Well, there's um, there's another need in the in the book. There's another story that I'd included on Patagonia's founder, Yves Chouinard. And what was interesting is he says a quote, um, uh, but I'll leave the story into it to really understand the quote. And it's one of my favorite quotes in the world and exactly it's what you're talking about. So in the early days of Patagonia, they focused on quality. He was a mountain climber. He liked respect for the environment and the mountain. And he had the choice when he had a lot of early demand to expand quickly and add more factories, maybe overseas. But he resisted and he focused on quality and he turned orders away. And over time, Patagonia evolved to a company that's become wildly successful because of their emphasis on quality and still the environment. In fact, they're a company where, to give you an idea on the environment, if you are at an environmental protest and you get arrested, they will bail you out of jail. That's a company policy. The CEO last put out a quote, and it was a year to two years ago, and he said, if you want to buy another coat from us because you're bored, don't. We don't want you buying a new product just because you're bored of whatever you have. Um, we're not out here to create excess stuff. And so as a result, we, they launched something called Warnware, which is a, a program where they tour the stores and for free, they'll repair your Patagonia clothing so you don't have to buy new clothing. Wow, that's weird. Now, this company has gained a huge following because of an intense commitment to the environment, being unwavering in both the quality and, and, and the eco focus. So they're an interesting benchmark in that particular vertical of, of, of uh, humans who wish to follow such a, uh, you know, a lifestyle. But what was interesting is he had a quote uh, that sums all of this up and has been their mission for many years. And it's the a mountain climbing quote. He was a climber and he said, it's not the attainment of the summit. It's the style of the climb. <laughs> I love it. Well, I think that's a great place to end for part one. Um, everybody, please, please go to uh, Jeremy's website. Go, go check out Trend Hunter. Go to the Amazon page and look at Create the Future and, and buy 10 copies for all your friends. And uh, tune into part two of the interview. We're going to keep asking more questions here. Thanks, everyone.